Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, and uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, Andrew and I are doing our own thing today. It's an I've been thinking about segment. And given that, uh, well, Andrew's been in Winter Wonderland for a while, and uh, finally Toronto's had its first really early season dumping of snow. We've had about 20 centimeters um, early Monday, actually all day Monday. Uh, so sometimes when, uh, when uh, you know, the Northern Hemisphere weather starts to shift, we get a little bit bogged down in our training. Um, it doesn't help that for most of us, all the all the racing has been done. And um, now is a, kind of a funny period in the life of an endurance athlete where you don't have a goal on the immediate horizon. And, uh, you know, perhaps the motivation isn't as high because you've just done a big race, perhaps, or several races. And the, the weather for outdoor activities maybe isn't as attractive as uh, as it once was a few months ago um and certainly the shorter days don't help that uh, that mood and motivation so today's episode is going to be all about how to keep things positive and how to keep um yourself interested in continuing to train towards those goals and that's certainly the situation for me right now where basically all of those points that you mentioned having yeah just completed a race, uh, having terrible weather, um, or at least Arctic weather. It was minus 26, I think over the weekend. Holy smokes. Okay. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So welcome to Alberta apparently. Uh, and then it went up to two degrees a a day later. So welcome to Chinooks as well. Um, so this has been wild for me, but it's been very difficult to stay motivated. So, uh, especially, Leading up to a race, I've got five-hour indoor rides at steady power output, uh, which is not the most mentally stimulating kind of training. <laughs> so, in fact, mind-numbing or painful are other words for it, and just difficult to get through. So, it kind of brought up this point of how do you actually stay motivated in the off-season? Okay, so tip number one. This one's gonna, this one is probably the easiest tip of all, and that tip is take a break. Um, it's, uh, sometimes a little bit of a difficult pill to swallow for all of us type A go-getters <laughs> in, uh, in this sport, but it is essential in my opinion for the, the, well, physical, but especially the mental health of, uh, an endurance athlete, uh, who trains year round, which a lot of us do to take a little bit of a break after the, um, after big races, I, I would say after all big races, you know, after any, any a race that you have, and you may only have two or three of those. In fact, you should really only have two or three of those in a year, but after your, your a race, um, it's really important to take a break. Um, a good break in my opinion, um, is something that's one to two weeks. And I would say you kind of want to do nothing during that, um, during that period, as hard as that sounds, it, it really is, is useful and don't panic. Your fitness is not going to slide all the way back down to zero. You'll probably lose a tiny little bit in two weeks, but really in one week, you know, the, the, the difference is difficult to measure. So very little impact on fitness and incredibly important. Spend time with family and friends, which you may or may not have been likely may have been neglecting as you're spending, as you're doing big training hours, uh, do other stuff, um, you know, get more sleep, eat, uh, 
but really do take that break. It is it's amazing what what seven to fourteen days of not training can do for your for your well being. Even though the first couple of days you'll probably be you know chewing off your fingernails and uh, and climbing the walls. <laughs> It, it's definitely tough as a type A person to put down all the training and just to step away. But sometimes your body just needs that time to recover. Uh, we're always in a state of um, constant depletion and recovery and essentially chronic inflammation as well. We're, we're driving this muscle soreness that, uh, that just comes from training, this muscle damage that comes from training. So giving yourself that week, um, it just helps you kind of get back to your baseline. And yeah, after a big race, like you dig really deep in a race and you get that extra muscle damage. So it's important just to recover and not to essentially keep digging the, the hole of, um, of muscle damage or soreness that you've already got. Yeah. And I would say, I, I certainly agree with all the points you make, and, but I just want to reemphasize the, the mental break that, you know, when you, yes, when you race yes. an A race, it doesn't matter if it's a 5k or, 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 or a full marathon or an Ironman. I mean, 5K is usually not so bad because it's a, it's a much shorter duration event. But when you really go, go to the well, um, when you really spend everything you have to go as fast or as long as you possibly can, um, that, takes, that definitely takes some time to, to get over. And um, sometimes, uh, for instance, you, you mentioned you have to give your body a break. My body gets sick usually after those big efforts. So I, I can't help but take that break. I've been like just now getting over that chest cold that, that kicked my ass for, for two weeks after the marathon. So, uh, uh sometimes the breaks are involuntary, <laughs> but it's important to listen to your body. Nonetheless, it's telling you something when that happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. So once you've taken your, uh, your one to two week break, now it is time to do some planning or some dreaming. And uh, this is a really good opportunity to think about, you know, why you're in this sport, what makes you, um, what, what really gets you fired up. For a lot of people, it's uh, racing with friends. So maybe you start, uh, you start the FOMO machine cranking at full power and uh, start soliciting your friends to sign up for races that, that they <laughs> maybe have no business signing up for. <laughs> or, or you yourself or that friend who gets, who gets sucked into a race like that. Um, you know, perhaps it's travel and, and doing exotic destination races. So start thinking about that kind of stuff. And that really is, uh, is a good motivator to, to get you into the mindset of thinking about training again and perhaps you have a big dream maybe it's not you know a destination race or a race with your friends but it's the first time you want to do a half Ironman or an Ironman or your first marathon so this is an excellent time to start dreaming those big dreams and I think just uh, as part of the dreams imagining yourself crossing the finish line and imagine imagining yourself hitting that target time and that goal time is really important um, I remember hearing about a speech that uh, Mark Tewksbury had done before I think it was the Barcelona Olympics um, where he had uh, was it 92 that was Barcelona. I'm just trying to remember off the top of my head. Now. 92 was Barcelona. Yeah. Yep. So uh, he ended up winning a gold medal, but he actually snuck into the pool while it was still under construction. And he stood where the podium was and just imagined himself winning that medal. Um, and he ended up getting the gold. Cool. Um, so having having that kind of visualization, I think, really helps drive you. And that's something that I look forward to as well. Like just that that thought of me crossing the finish line, hitting my target time. You know, whether it's a Kona qualification spot or if you're doing running, if it's a Boston Marathon qualification or even just completing your first marathon or Ironman or any race length. That visualization is extremely important, and that that kind of gives me that extra little push and that extra little 
effort to finish tough workouts and to, you know, wake up on mornings that I don't really want to wake up on just to get that training done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the part two of that step would be once you have an idea of what you want to do, um, think about what it's going to take to get there. So, you know, have a have a think about an honest assessment of where you were at your peak in uh, 2019 in this past season. You know, look at some of your best races and what your what your physiological metrics were. So if you're a runner, you know, think about what your maybe critical pace or threshold pace or critical power if you're running with power were um, and what it allowed you to achieve. Look at how much training you did this year in terms of training volume and then project that over onto 2020 or next season and think about in think about that big goal race and what it would take for you to achieve that dream that Andrew was just talking about of of that BQ or that KQ or that you know first Ironman. Start thinking some start start doing some of those um, some of that thought work to to realize what you, what it's going to take to get you there. And then once you have a, a pretty good idea, and if that's something that's you know look if that's something that you don't exactly know what it's going to take because sometimes these things are not very straightforward you know it's it's hard to know what you're going to need to do to boston qualify then then have a chat with a coach or have a chat with maybe a, a more experienced athlete in your peer group and this is really the perfect time to arrange something with a coach if you've never worked with one before and it might be what's needed for you personally to get to that next level of, of performance and and accomplishment so it's it's a good time to just reshuffle your training plan just um, make changes things like that because you don't want to make a change before a race, but now you have time to recover and to adapt to any changes in your your overall training as well. Yeah, for sure. And even if it's not hiring a coach for the season, um, sit down with somebody who you, whose opinion you trust and value. And then, um, you know, if it's if it's a coach, they'll probably charge you for a consultation. Or if it's somebody who's a friend who's experienced, then hopefully you can just you know buy them a couple of pints um, and uh, and pick their brain about what they think it's going to take to to get you to where you want to be. And then from there, you want to start working backwards. You know, you you know where you are today from assessing your. 2019 season you now hopefully know where you need to be or you think you you know where you need to be for 2020 to hit your goals so then you know whatever that delta is between today and race day 2020 you want to create your plan to get you from that a to that b so for instance you know if that could be one of the one potential one example could be let's say if you if you want to do a certain ironman and you want a specific you know part of the your goal time is a is a 6 hour bike or a 5 hour bike uh, you can start doing some analysis to see what sort of power do i need given my aerodynamics to achieve that objective right and so andrew and i are good sources for that kind of information <laughs> um uh, or best bike split is an excellent program that uh, peak swear puts out so you could do some some really really good high-end quantitative analysis and figure out okay well i need to hold 200 watts so if i'm going to hold 200 watts for six hours where does my ftp need to be for that now the answer the answer i'll tell you right now is probably pretty close to that 300 mark not very far off um, so if you're, you know, if you're at 180 watts right now, maybe getting to 300 in a season is not likely, but, uh, you know, if you're in the 240, 250, depending where your, where your training has been like, then 
maybe that's something that you shoot for. And then you you can structure your cycling training plan to get to that target. And then you have some benchmarks that you can you can sort of tick off as you go along throughout your uh, cycling season. And this is just one example. I mean, there are there are many like it that you could uh, you could come up with for the three sports that we practice. And I think there's um, something to be said for specificity as well with the type of terrain you're dealing with, because there are some Ironmans out there that are quite challenging. So Lanzarote is a good example with for sure. lots and lots of climbing. And it's even to the point where I think some pros use road bikes instead of tri bikes. And dealing with that feeling of climbing for a long period of time where you're not traveling fast, where you're not getting that extra cooling, that's something that you want to replicate during training as much as you can. And not just the week before the race, go and climb a hill a couple of times. You need to bake that into your whole training plan and figure out, okay, how do I adapt to this? And if it's um, something where like a lot of people when they're climbing hills, they bump their power output slightly. And it's not not something that they consciously do. It's just the feeling of, oh, I can turn the pedals a little bit harder because I'm on a hill. Uh, and that can get you into trouble really quickly on an Ironman course. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I'm in the camp where I place um, a little bit less emphasis on race specificity training. It's, it, is, it is absolutely important. Um, I think that it's um, I think that people often get too carried away with it, and uh, I generally try to shift it later in the season. Certainly not a week out, um, but uh, maybe you know maybe four to six weeks might be the specific preparation phase. Um, but there's no you know there's no right or wrong answer here. I don't think. I, I think it depends on how far away you are in your general fitness from hitting your goal, then maybe that's the first focus. And then the second focus is being being ready to perform to race day demands. But yeah, I totally take your point. Yeah. And mainly as long as it's included in your plan somewhere, that's the big thing. You don't want to just be shooting from the hip, so to say. Um, For sure. So you want to have something that's you know, it's it's in there. It's something you're accounting for. You're understanding that this might be a psychologically challenging race. Um, so using Lanzarote as an example, again, or Penticton, which I'll be doing next year, uh, where it can be really hot and it's very hilly. Um, I'm going to have trouble with that. So I need to start thinking about that, actually. Absolutely. And then there are some, you know, general... Uh, general fitness things that I would consider general fitness that you can you can start putting into place into your schedule into your training plan now that aren't maybe necessarily very specific like you know climbing a hill in hot conditions where there's not a lot of airflow but there could be things you could work on like you know let's say maximal strength right um, which we'll get to a little bit later in the show but uh, you know things that are more more general would um, could help you climb that climb those hills and then again i would say for for your aerobic fitness like elevating your vo2 max and your threshold power um you you know certainly with with a higher vo2 max higher threshold you can do more work <laughs> up those hills right so or work less hard you know as a percentage of your of your max when you're climbing those hills so training your aerobic training your aerobic capacity um, in our overwhelmingly aerobic sport is never a bad idea. That should always be, you know, objective number one in, in almost all of your training. So along the lines of just dreaming and thinking of what you can do in the following year, um, one thing that uh, that I've actually tried out this year, and I've mentioned it before, but uh, racing Ironman Cozumel. Um, it's a late season race, which is an interesting training challenge, uh, but it's also a chance for vacation. So one of the really neat things about some of these Ironman or Challenge Series races is they're in 
really neat locations. So it's a great reason to go with the family for a couple of days. Um, you know, enjoy the sites and the local, uh, just the, the local scenery and everything that there is to offer in that destination. And you get to have a reason to go somewhere. Um, it might be more expensive than just going to that location for a just a general vacation, but it's something to motivate you and to, to bring you there. And having Cozumel come in November, late November, um, especially when it's minus 26 outside, it <laughs> I wouldn't be doing five-hour rides right now on the trainer um, if it were anything else, right? Like if I was training for next season, I wouldn't have the motivation I do right now. And even with that that destination race where it's a really cool place to go, um, it's still a bit of a challenge, but it does give you that extra little spark, um, especially, you know, in November where you've been racing or training all season and the interest is starting to wane a little bit. Um, this gives you just that, that little push. And I think it's a really cool experience. We'll see how the race goes, but um, I'm very excited about it. That's awesome. Um, the one I remember reading this piece of advice in uh, in uh, a magazine somewhere, and it it made a lot of sense to me that if you are planning a destination race, especially if you're going with family or friends, it's a good idea to, from a social perspective, it's a good idea to have the race earlier in your vacation, because most of us. You know, as we get close to race day, get a little bit jittery and maybe unpleasant. And perhaps we don't want to go, you know, look at Mayan ruins and, and hike through the jungle two days, one day out of an Ironman for obvious reasons. So, um, you know, we, we probably wouldn't make very good trip partners the week before a big race. Um, the week after a big race, we could ar- you could argue that, you you know, you can't walk properly. So you might not also <laughs> not make a very good, uh, very good trip partner, but at least you won't be, you know, you won't be poo-pooing all the ideas because you're you're worried about being on your feet too much or or not getting that swim in that you really think you should. So that that's the exact opposite strategy I've gone with. <laughs> um, so I booked uh, a longer trip leading up to it for heat acclimation and just to get used. In to your it. case, I was I was going to say yeah. The caveat to that is if you're if you're acclimating to heat or altitude, then you kind of want the opposite. Um, yeah. but you know, there's, there's always, there's always the battle between, you know, your social obligations and your sporting, you know, desires. And I had multiple family members, uh, very graciously volunteer to come along to Mexico in November, um, <laughs> so, yeah. twist their arm, but, uh, yeah, they can, they can go and do their thing while I'm grumpy on my own. <laughs> so they'll at least have each other to, to keep, uh, to keep busy. Nice. As long as they, you know, you've established those expectations. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So speaking of winter, because it is now officially winter in both Southern Ontario and obviously in Alberta, um, winter can be a really hard season for our, you know, for triathletes and runners and cyclists because, you know, our sports are outdoors and they're generally done in warm weather. Uh, so it can be a real drag, as Andrew was saying, doing five hour rides on the trainer. That's not fun. Um, and it's, it can, it can definitely take a big mental toll. So one of the things that, that I certainly strongly recommend, and I think a lot of other coaches do too, is unless you have a race coming up in the very near future, like Andrew does, and, um, specificity is not really that important, mix up your stimulus. So doing things like, um, doing embracing winter sports whatever those those sports are is a really lovely way to keep the fitness up maybe even gain some some you know some other forms of fitness um without uh without doing it all indoors on a treadmill or a trainer 
So some examples, probably the best one is cross-country skiing. Um, you know, there's a lot of crossover, both uh, aerobically. Obviously, it's a very high aerobically demanding sport um, and muscularly to to both running and cycling. And it's really no surprise that the two sports in the world that have um, athletes consistently um, exhibiting the highest VO2 max values are cross-country skiers and cyclists. So that should be, that should, you know, tell you that there's a lot of crossover and a lot of uh, that cross-training potential with cross-country skiing and cycling. I will put a little bit of a sub-note on that where rowers have the highest or some of the highest oxygen uptake levels, um, but in terms of normalized by body mass, because they tend to have a lot more muscle mass, they that number kind of gets washed right. out. But in terms of absolute oxygen uptake, um, rowers are up there as well. So that's because it's another full body sport. It's it's very much like cross-country skiing where you're engaging all of these different muscles that are using oxygen. Um, so I would even say that indoor rowing, if you have access to a, a rowing machine, uh, like traditional rowing competitions are quite short just because lakes aren't 70 kilometers long in a lot of spaces. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so they tend to be, I yeah. think the 2K distance is a really common rowing distance. But um you can you can certainly hop on a rowing machine for a lot longer and you can uh, just practice that uh, oxygen uptake where you're operating at a VO2 level and you're actually probably engaging more muscle utilization than you would be through just cycling because you've got that upper body acting as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's still a very quad dominant exercise, so still very relevant to cycling. Uh, Cross-country skiing, I think, is an excellent thing for people to do as well because it, it does use a lot of the muscles that um, that you would be engaging for running or cycling. And it's it's a great opportunity to just get outside. And it's um, very similar motivations where it's a long distance sport. Um, you get to be outside, see some beautiful scenery if you're if you live in the right place, I guess. Um, but there's, there's just a lot of neat things you can do with it. For sure. There's like the, you know, I, I don't know whose, whose adage this is, but the one you see on, on social media all the time that, you know, if you, uh, if you don't learn to embrace winter or snow, you'll, you'll still, or, you know, it goes, if you don't learn to love snow, you'll still have just as much snow in your life, but you'll have less love in your life. So that's, you know, if oh, you can, isn't uh, that if sweet? you can, <laughs> right. If you can uh, learn to enjoy being out there, uh, it really does help, you know, um, dealing with the winter blues. Snowshoeing is another really good opportunity to to get out there. Similar to skiing, it's uh, obviously the run the the gait is quite similar to running, so it's it, it closely it really translates into running quite well. Um, you can actually do pretty good trail running depending where you live. Um, in the winter, I know, speaking from experience in Toronto, uh, I love winter trail running. Um, you know, you put on your headlight and you you go out into the snow. Uh, and depending on what the conditions are, you can actually do a pretty good job of, of, uh, of running. So you actually can keep a fairly reasonable pace on the trails. It, it gets a little bit dodgy when there's a lot of freeze thaw going on, which I know Calgary is is pretty bad for. Oh, so yeah. you get a lot yeah. of ice. Um, but if it's if it's not super icy on fresh powder or pack powder, uh, winter trail running is amazing. Yeah, and proper footwear is just the thing I'd recommend for that. So if if you might encounter ice, um, take some of the the act tracks shoe spikes or something like that just so that you're not going to be sliding around because the last thing you want to do is break an ankle or 
get some kind of injury that puts you out for the rest of the season. Totally. Um, so you can certainly enjoy it, but you don't have to, you don't necessarily have to be going all out all the time and just make sure that you're properly set up for that type of running or that type of expedition. Yeah. And if it's not icy, then, uh, then regular trail shoes are really good. Anything with a deep lug, um, is, uh, is what you want for, for winter trail running when it's on snow. So the deeper the lug, the better it's kind of the opposite of what you'd want on hard surfaces because snow is probably the softest surface you'll find. So any, any, um, yeah, deep lug trail shoe will work really well on snow. So one other thing that's, um, something I looked at in the past with kind of a bit of skepticism, but, uh, winter mountain biking, um, I tried it when I was, when I was in high school and it was just with a normal mountain bike and I picked up a whole bunch of snow in the, the tires and it just slid and it was kind of miserable. But since then, um, because an unfortunate number of years have now passed since I was in high school, um, I've experienced fat biking and I, I kind of looked down on it for a while, but, um, yeah, fat biking in the snow with studded tires is so much more fun than I would have expected. And I had a chance to do that last November, I think in Canmore. And, uh, so I'd come out, it was actually when we were initially talking to four eyes as, as part of stack, um, we were talking to four eyes, uh, and I had come out to visit the office and, um, I had only brought equipment for indoor riding. So I basically had, you know, some of my cycling gear for the summer and I loaded up as many layers as I could put on there. Um, uh, but I was not well prepared for the cold. I had no gloves, oh, no. Uh, anything like that. And it was, I think it was around minus eight or minus 10. Oh. Um, but despite all that, despite freezing my fingers off, basically, uh, it was a ton of fun. So just the the big tires and the the spikes give you so much grip um so much more than you ex- would expect on ice and snow and it was just it was a lot of fun it's something that you can just go out and and kind of bomb around and if you fall off your bike you generally unless you hit a tree you, you generally <laughs> land on something pretty soft right yeah, well, so the history of the fat bike is uh, is in a Al- is from Alaska. I think the uh, that's where the first prototypes were made, where they just basically took mountain bikes and and uh, you know set up set them up to have a wider fork, and they basically had to custom build the wheels and and custom mold the tires. That was the hardest thing to do was to make the to make the tires because there were no there was nobody molding you know four inch tires at the time, but um, they were designed for snow. That was the that was the first application for snow bikes where they were where they first started to gain popularity is in the snow so um you're yeah you're you're not at all off base when you're you're recommending fat bikes for snow i haven't tried them but uh it's something that i'd love to give a go because it also actually is from what i understand and again this is just secondhand information not i haven't experienced it but uh it's actually a lot easier to ride somewhat technical trails on a fat bike rather than, you know, when they're, the trails are not snow covered on a mountain bike, because they're a lot more forgiving because of the, the extra tire volume and the extra grip. Yeah. And I guess the ruts that you get forming in mud tend to be fairly narrow and fairly deep and can toss you off a bike quickly, but with the wider tires, it just, it would kind of scoot over that and it wouldn't be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the thinking. And, uh, that's something that I'd, I'd love to try and do. You can actually, you can rent fat bikes in most places. Cause you know, that's still a bit of an investment and plus one and all that. But, uh, 
Um, I think most places that uh, that have any kind of mountain biking culture will have places that will rent you a fat bike and show you to the nearest trail, so you can uh, you can give it a go. Yeah, and that's exactly what I did in Canmore last year, and it, I think it ended up costing me fifty bucks for the day, and it was totally worth it, ton of fun. And now I'm considering buying one, so so I guess it was a worthwhile, or maybe not a worthwhile investment because it now means I'm going to have to spend more money on another bike. <laughs> well, you don't need a super high end one, right? Just a bomber. No, no, no. And they're, they're not light bikes. It's the polar opposite of what you'd expect in a triathlon bike where it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's built like a tank and it weighs about the same as a tank would. <laughs> yeah. Um, so getting a little bit, getting back to our conversation on uh, plans, now is a really good time to think about, again, reflecting back to the 2019 season and thinking about where perhaps were some of the areas where it, the season didn't go quite as well as you thought. So I'm going to use my own example specifically in that marathon that I talked about in our last, uh, you know, I've been thinking about episode. I was talking about a limiter being muscular endurance. So that is something that I know how to how to address through training. Now, for many people, um, especially people who are triathletes who spend a ton of time doing swim, bike, run, not a ton of time doing anything else. Um, and this is especially true for the older population, um, physical strength, so the ability to actually deliver force efficiently, is a limiter. So this, um, you know, this is not going to be a show about strength training. We are going to have one of those for you coming up. But this is, uh, but, you know, strength training, if you've been neglecting it all season, now is absolutely the time to start practicing it. And unless you're, a, you know, a male under the age of 25, and even if you are one of those, you absolutely need it in your life um, if you are done racing. So I certainly wouldn't say, Andrew, go start, you know, doing, you know, one rep max squats because you've got a race in uh, in a couple of weeks. But uh, for for the rest of us who aren't racing for the next little while, now is the time to start thinking about, about strength training. And I'm a huge fan of strength training as well. I think there's so many benefits for endurance athletes, and it's probably the most ignored training stimulus out there um, in terms of time spent to get some kind of response um, I would say you can't beat it at the at, it, as long as you do a reasonable amount of training you can't beat it and so many yes. athletes just say oh I'd rather do a run than do a strength training uh, any strength training workout and that's probably the opposite of what they should be doing where you could probably sacrifice a run without losing much fitness but you'd be gaining a lot in terms of having that extra strength and it serves so many purposes like the energy recovery when you're running so you can actually improve your run efficiency um, just by improving strength so yep, totally. there's, there's a lot of benefits it's just so often ignored unless uh, unless you have a coach that really really presses you to do that and even then a lot of people when they have coaches just ignore their coaches <laughs> Yeah, and I, I want to highlight something that you said, and I, I think it's very true, is that um, you will get good return for investment, I believe, in strength training. Um, the the caveat there is that provided you're doing enough swim, bike, run volume, and, and that's something that you mentioned. And so for people who are really low volume folks, again, I'm starting to go off the road and actually make this an episode about strength training. Um, if you are truly low volume training, um, you know, you, let's say you only have like four, five, six hours a week to train of swim, bike, run, it's hard to fit that all in. Then it's hard to make a case for, for spending some of that precious time doing weightlifting. But if you're, you know, more on the 12 plus hour, 10 plus hour, 
you know, certainly getting to 20 hours a week, then absolutely some of that time is, is best spent in the gym. And then this ties in nicely with what we were talking about, switching, switching stimuli. If you are um, taking a little bit of a maybe not a full-on break, but reducing the volume of swim bike run, then adding some strength volume in here is is a, is really, really a good idea. And you actually don't need very much. Um, I'm a fan of two to three days a week uh, of, you know, 30 to 45 minutes in the gym. It doesn't even need to be that much. You can, there's some evidence that, you know, again, frequency trumps duration here, uh, similar to what Michael Erickson was talking to us about a couple episodes ago. So even doing some body weight training for 15 to 20 minutes a day, three, three to four days a week can be very effective. Um, and this isn't just, you can just do straight up strength if you haven't done it in a while and it's going to make, it's going to make a difference in your life. But if you go to the trouble of doing some, um, a little bit of fitness assessment, a little bit of mobility assessment, then you can really see where the limiters are, where, where you may be restricted in your, uh, your range of motion of your joints. And then you can add some strength or some, some, um, strategic stretching to improve your body's function and improve your ability to, you know, as Tilbury Davis says, express your, your aerobic fitness to the maximum extent possible. One really important point I want to make with this too is <clears throat> some people are concerned about bulking up too quickly or they think, oh, I'm going to put on a ton of weight or a ton of muscle mass that I don't need. And that is not the case at all. Um, no, that's complete bullshit. Yeah. No, let's just call that out right now. Yeah. <laughs> so knowing the effort that people put into actually gaining muscle mass and how hard they have to work at that, um, just... If, if you've been down that path, uh, and I have, before I got into triathlon, I used to do a lot of, um, not necessarily bodybuilding, but just working out and trying to, to gain muscle mass. And honestly, I don't know the reason that I was trying to do that, but, um, it was something that I was, cause it setting. looks good. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, so the, the reason I had, uh, or, or what I was trying to accomplish was just putting on additional mass. And for two years, I was working out basically six days a week and, uh, you know, an hour a day, six days a week. And I put on very little weight. Um, so once I started upping my calorie intake, uh, and this is an obvious energy balance problem, but once I started eating 4,000, 5,000 calories a day, that's when I started gaining weight, which is what you'd expect. Yep. But I really didn't put on muscle mass before that point. So you really need to overfuel yourself in order to, to bulk up. So have no fear. Like you're not going to do this uh, over the course of a few months. It takes years of work and you have to overeat like crazy. Basically, you have to overeat to the point where you're sick of food but still eating um, in order to put on that kind of weight. And it's it's just like getting faster with running, right? If you go out and run a couple times, you're not going to all of a sudden turn into a marathon runner. Um, same with weightlifting, unless you're really focusing on putting that muscle mass on, uh, you're not going to do that. You're not going to bulk up. So you will, you will gain strength for sure, but you're not necessarily going to gain muscle mass. You're just taking that muscle that you currently have and, and, uh, and making it work more efficiently. Yeah, totally agree with you. I mean, there, there, there probably will be a little bit of hypertrophy that happens, and hypertrophy is is muscle growth, but it's going to be minimal in terms of like actual, you know, measurable kilo weight gain. It's it's going to be it's going to be hard, very hard to measure. Um, and yeah, exactly right. Like on three days a week at forty five minutes, you're not going to be you're not going to be getting those kind of results that people work super hard to uh, to attain. And then the other thing too is that our for the most part, swim bike run is um, is catabolic, right? So it is um, your body will actually 
metabolize some of the tissues in order to fuel itself unless you're being very careful with energy balance and um, running especially you will actually consume some of the muscle that you've put on so this is you can think of you know early season strength training as protective against that later in the season. And again, that process accelerates with age. So the the older you are, um, the faster you will lose muscle mass. And women tend to lose it faster than men do too. So if you're, you know, uh, especially if you're female and you're older, you're at, this is absolutely essential for you to be doing in your in your strength in your uh, kind of overall um, training practice and in terms of injury prevention um, having that extra strength will give you the ability to prevent things like ankle rolls and it'll give you increased stability so mm-hmm. there's there's so many benefits of it and I just wish more endurance athletes did it more often myself included absolutely and we can you know I think Andrew you and I can talk about this for a while but we're gonna save this because I, I want to do a, a dedicated episode <laughs> on on the benefits and the how-tos so let's let's leave it there suffice it to say you should start go find a gym or work out at home. Sounds good. Uh, One other factor that until very recently, I hadn't thought too much about as a limiter, um, but I sort of am starting to see it now is uh, mental sort of resilience and fortitude. And I've, you know, I've, I've always paid attention to sports psychology and, um, and, 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 looked for resources on uh, on improving the mental game during training and racing. Uh, but a recent show from uh, our friend Michael Erickson of uh, That Triathlon Show, which we'll link to, um, had a guest who was uh, who studied under Samuel Marcora, who's uh, famous for sort of uh, piloting the psychobiological model of, uh, of uh, exertion. And uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna paraphrase the show because you know you sh- you would be much better served by just going and listening to the to the original. But one of the things that uh, Michael's guest was talking about was how um, mindfulness practice, which is gen- you know meditation or any other forms of mindfulness practice, um, can elevate really every aspect of your life. So. Sports performance, absolutely, but also, you know, interpersonal or uh, work performance. And um, this was kind of, you know, a little bell rang in my brain because it was some, this was something that I used to do on a regular basis. I used to meditate quite a bit. Uh, and then I abandoned it for, you know, one reason or another, probably just getting too busy. And it's something that if I think back to my life the way it was when I was meditating, when I was practicing, I liked it so much better. I felt much better about myself, about things like emotional regulation and uh, my ability to focus on on work and my performance and training. And um, this is something that, that, again, takes time, kind of like strength and mobility, um, but it doesn't take very much time. And uh, if you're especially, again, in that situation where you're able to reduce your swim, bike, run volume a little bit, making time for mindfulness practice can be something really, really, really important um, for, you know, for sport and also for overall well-being, I think. The whole aspect of psychology and sport or just in general, I find fascinating because there's so many things about the brain that we don't understand. And there are so many interactions that occur that we may not fully believe in, but they occur anyway. Um, I remember, I don't have a reference for this, but I remember hearing a study about uh, patients recovering from surgery. And while they were anesthetized, um, 
their likelihood of full recovery was improved when the surgeons were saying positive things during surgery. Um, so your brain was subconsciously hearing these things and processing that um, basically that you had a good prognosis. But uh, when the, the surgeons were really negative, it's like, oh, this guy doesn't have much of a chance. Might as well not, you know, might as well stop now. Um, you would subconsciously process that and have less of a chance to to recover given equal circumstances so oh that's remarkable um, i really wish i could provide a reference for that maybe i'll dig around for it after we're done recording this but um yeah there's so many things like that and placebo effect has been well documented and that just really illustrates the power of right. psychology and the, the power of the brain when it comes to a lot of these like training stimulus or, or anything like that or just believing that you're having an effect on yourself can actually have an effect so it's uh yeah, very, very interesting area, but um, it's just so hard to quantify much of that stuff. And the, the good, solid research doesn't necessarily exist just for that reason, because it's very difficult to quantify. Well, I'm going to listen to the episode that I just referenced, Andrew, and uh, I'll, like I said, I'll put it in the show notes, the, the one that uh, Michael uh, put together with uh, Walter. And uh, I see what you think, because the, the research that, that these guys are doing now is starting to quantify at least performance improvements from people who are engaging in this kind of training and this kind of, uh, he talks about, he talks about things other, outside of mindfulness as well as, uh, he talks about, um, cognitive stress training during endurance training, which is something that, you know, Samuel Marcora was, uh, I think a pioneer of as well. Um, that aside, just mindfulness practice has been shown to improve, uh, sport performance. So one thing I will throw out there, and again, this is in Michael's episode, but, uh, there was an app recommendation for meditation. Um, so I used to use an app that was a, uh, a subscription app, which was, you know, not super expensive, but certainly not inexpensive. Um, and then the Michael's guest recommended an Australian non-for-profit app called Smiling Mind, which I've just started using. And it's excellent. It has pretty much all the features of this um, pay-to-play app, um, but it's it's completely free. So Smiling Mind, uh, download it on iTunes or uh, or Google. Uh, it's a very use, it's a very handy and very easy to get into meditation app. If that's something that you, if uh, a mindfulness practice is something that you want to add to your off season or really to your life. So I think we somehow took a tangent from from what motivates you in sport to uh, to talking about sports psychology, which would be another interesting episode on its own. Well, what is motivation, Andrew? Uh, I mean, like, yeah, yeah. motivation is is very much a psychological conversation. So if you can if you can still your mind and you can you know focus better and, and perform better in training and have better relationships, I think that's that goes a long way towards. Uh, you know, a more satisfying life and uh, being more motivated to trade. So in terms of what... That's my pitch. What, <laughs> that's a good pitch. I'm, I'm actually going to download that app when we're done. Uh, but in terms of what motivates you, um, it's a very good question because I had one of my coworkers ask me like, why the hell are you training five hours indoors to go to an Ironman where you're going to suffer for, you know, 10 plus hours in the heat? So like, why would you actually want to do that for fun? What, what part of that is fun? And that's a great question. So doing some of that introspective uh, questioning of yourself and, and saying, why do I like this sport? What on a good day, what makes me feel good about racing? And for me, I know the answer is just having that accomplishment of a good race. It's like, uh, I think it was Sir Edmund Hillary who said, you know, or was asked, why do you climb a mountain? And the answer was because it's there. 
Um, so why do we, why do we race? Because for me, because I like the competition, I like that feeling of accomplishing something that feels like an accomplishment. So it's, it's just, I think that's what really drives me. And I think about that quite often while I'm training, while I'm having miserable training sessions, but just thinking like, yeah, remember that feeling when you had a really good race and then that pushes me through. And there is one race in particular that I look back on that, <clears throat> that everything seemed to fall into place with. And that was the, uh, uh, it was a Rose city triathlon in Welland, Ontario in, I think it was 2018. So just everything came together. It was like the right temperature for that race. Um, I think really? I, it's always brutally hot for that race. You must have found the so, one year where it wasn't. <laughs> it was pouring rain. Um, oh, perfect. Well, actually, sorry, it was pouring rain after I finished. Uh, but it was just that uh, it was that kind of humid, but like low twenties early in the day. So it was just even though it was humid, it was still a decent temperature to race at. And I think I put in my fastest. Uh, fastest 15 K that I've ever run, uh, off the bike after like a, a good power number too. So, and I think I did like an hour and one for 15 K, which was a huge, huge number for That's me. That's amazing. Um, That's a so very good race. I, I, I look back at that race and think like that felt amazing to complete that. It was one of the most painful things I've done, but it, it felt amazing having completed that. And so many times when I'm struggling through a workout, I think, you know, just think of how you're going to feel when you hit that Ironman goal that you've been shooting for for a while. Um, so it's just that keeps me going. And that's, you know, in the dark days, in the uh, literally dark and cold days in Alberta in the winter, um, that really pushes me to the next level. Nice. That's awesome. Um, and we're, I have to say that we're all different, right? We all have different motivations for this stuff. Some people will be motivated by doing that vacation race or some people will be <laughs> motivated by going there with friends or, or having a really solid training group of people to, to train together. Um, my own, my own sort of motivations have evolved over the years. And I think now if I was to put a label on it, my, uh, I really feel satisfied when I've engineered a perfect race for myself. So when I've done the right kind of training for the race demands, you know, that's satisfying as a coach, obviously. Um, and then when I've, um, executed the race as well as I possibly can, where I've, you know, stuck to my plan and the plan has worked out, that is where I feel the most satisfied. And it's not, not necessarily my best results, always, but where, you know, here's what I think my body is capable of based on these objective metrics. Here's what, you know, I think I can do in this race and here's how I'm going to execute it. And that's why I think I used to be, a, I used to not really like long course racing, um, mostly because I didn't know it, to be perfectly honest. I thought I liked to go short and fast, which is still fun. But with long course racing, what I really like about it is that it's, it is a really complex design problem right you where you have to get a lot of things right you know pacing nutrition um heat stress management which is something that i'm starting to think a lot more about having had our chats together um and getting all of those things doing it right on race day when you're under stress when there are all of these other factors you know uh, that, that you have to think about where you're not always very clear-headed because you've been running for recycling for 10 hours already that's what i really find um, a lot of satisfaction in and there's just so much opportunity for things to go wrong in a long course race so the the proper planning really comes into play yep. and that's i think as an engineer and as a planner and coach that's i can totally see how that would motivate you yeah yeah um 
Awesome. I think this is a good place to wrap. Andrew, anything else to add? No, I think that's everything that I wanted to get across. Um, yeah, it's good to talk about all that stuff because it actually gives me a few ideas because I've still got a few weeks to go. Well, actually, no. Uh, what are we, 13th? I'm racing on the 24th. So as of yeah. recording this, I have 11 days until I uh, subject myself to the heat and humidity of Cozumel. Uh, <laughs> You're a brave man. And then, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see how I feel after this race. I may not want to talk about it for a few weeks. Then you take uh, your break. Then you have to take yes. that two-week break. Yeah, no, I'm I'm actually looking quite forward to it. Um, so since moving out to Alberta, I haven't uh, haven't had a chance to spend much time with my parents. So they're going to be meeting me in Mexico. Uh, so that's a great opportunity for some family and things like that. And uh, yeah, I think it'll be a fun trip. Looking forward to it. We can do another race recap and explore uh, explore my mistakes and uh, how maybe I didn't engineer this race properly. Um, but uh, well, that's the fun of it. You can always you can always do better, right? Like it's, oh, yeah. it's the perfect race. As far as I'm concerned, you can have good races, but perfect races don't exist. Absolutely. Uh, and I found that uh, it's fun exposing my mistakes and discussing them and dissecting them. So, um, But nice. no, it, just talking about the, all this has given me that extra little bit of motivation to carry me through the last little bit of training. Um, so hopefully it does the same for some of our listeners as well. Yeah, I think it will. Uh, anything to uh, share on the 4i side? Uh, nothing at the moment. Um, and then on my side, uh, I have a couple more spots on the coaching roster for 2020. So if you are looking to get some help with some of the things we talked about today or any of the other things that relate to Swim, Bike, or Run, then uh, reach out to X3 and uh, we can have a chat. Excellent. All right. Well, I think that does it for us today. Yeah. As always, thank you very much for listening. And uh if you do like the show, uh, hopefully you do, since you're still here with us, tell your friends, help other people find this content and uh, do rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, everyone. 